You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. You can go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to ask you to do me a favor. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to remain seated and not move around, not get up and down. If uh, kids can't behave, then take them out. I don't mean literally like take them out. Don't do like uh, Sanford said to Lamont. He said, son, I brought you into the world. I can take you out. But um, I do want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit this morning. And I, I, I know we do have an enemy. Years ago, Sheila and I, with our kids, were on our way to England. We were on our way to move to England as missionaries. We had left the field of Zimbabwe, and then we're on our way to, to Europe. And we were on an airplane, and, and many of you have heard me tell the story of having the opportunity to meet Dr. Adrian Rogers. Now, let me explain to you that he's the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church there in Memphis, one of the largest churches in America, and just a premier... People have called him the Prince of Preachers. Okay, so here we were on this plane and had an opportunity, met uh, Adrian Rogers. Sheila sat with Joyce's wife and, and, and I sat with Adrian. And, well, we didn't sit. We actually were standing up near the stewardess area where they had made us a pot of coffee. And from 10 o'clock to 1.30 in the morning, Dr. Adrian Rogers and I just fellowship talk. We laugh, we cut up. In fact, at times the passengers became upset and would go, shh, you know, telling us to be quiet. And I'd want to go, do you realize who this is I'm talking to? This is the equivalent, if you were a high school quarterback, this is the equivalent of finding yourself on an airplane sitting next to Cam Newton. Okay? This is the kind of individual that this is in the preaching world. And in the course of us talking and sharing and going back and forth, I, I was recommending to Dr. Adrian Rogers, this prince of preachers, the pastor of Bellevue, I was recommending a book. And he was just listening. And boy, I went on and on about this book. I said, this book was written by Erwin Lutzer, a uh, very, very capable writer. The book is called Christ Among Other Gods. And I was just going on and on about it, just really enamored and excited about it. And he was sitting there listening, listening to me. And then all of a sudden, it was like a tap on my shoulder. I guess it was the Holy Spirit. And I just thought for a moment, and I thought, wait a minute. He wrote the foreword to the book. And I started laughing. I said, Dr. Rogers, I said, you know. And by that time, it was Adrian. And Jeff, I said, Adrian. I said, you wrote the foreword to the book. You've already read the book. You proved the, man- you proved the manuscript. And he started laughing. He said, yeah, but he said, it is a great book, isn't it? I want to read a quote out of that book concerning Easter. He said, Erwin Lutzer, in this book, Christ Among Other Gods, he said, every religion has a responsibility to answer an unbeliever's challenge. We have a right to ask. Now listen to this. He said, we have a right to ask the Buddhist, the Hindu, or Muslim, what would have to happen before you would give up your belief? What evidence would you accept that would count decisively against your creed. In other words, again, what you believe. We cannot give our religious... Now listen to Lutzer saying this. We cannot give our religious convictions a privileged position that is closed to rational investigation unless we can point to evidence outside of ourselves 
evidence accessible to everyone, even a non-believer, we have no reason to say that our beliefs are true to us and for others. So we have to have justifiable reason. Only the historic Christian faith can meet the atheist challenge. Listen to this. We, unlike any other religion of the world, can state conditions under which we will surrender our faith. Now stay with me. Listen to this. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ can be proved to be a hoax... If the resurrection of Jesus Christ can be proved to be a hoax, Lutzer said this, I for one, and listen to this, I'll join him. I for one, along with Brother Jeff, will cease to believe in Christ and hold to the tenets of Christianity. Now, in light of that, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul knew this. And he's writing to this church at Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 3, Paul said, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Peter... Then to the twelve disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers. At the same time, most of them... Now listen to this. Paul understands their hesitancy to believe in the resurrection. So Paul says, And after that, he appeared to more more than 500 of the brothers. At the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James... Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now skip down to verse 13. Paul said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, now watch this, he's Paul speaking to me here. He might as well be saying, Jeff Parker, Brother Jeff, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is, and he's talking to all of you, and so is your faith. Now one last verse, look at verse 17, because Paul sums it up here. And if Christ has, been not, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still living in your sins. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word, dear Lord, that we don't need a fancy sermon, dear Lord. You're not looking for me to impress anybody today. You're just simply asking me to be an obedient messenger. That's what I want to be. Father, as best I can, I've cleansed and got my heart where it needs to be, but Lord, if there's anything in me, any thought, deed, any idle word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the blood of Jesus Christ, cleanse me and forgive me. Use me for your kingdom today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.
Lutzer goes on to make this statement. In light of what we just said, Erwin Lutzer said this in this book, Christ Among Other Gods. He continues, he says, Paul is adamant in his argument. A man who claimed to be God was put to death, was raised to prove that his claims were valid, and if it be proven that Christ is still dead, if his grave still contains his body, Lutzer said, we will stop preaching and humbly admit that we have been misled. He concludes by saying this, our faith is built on historical facts. To deny the resurrection is to deny that Alexander the Great ever lived. And so I want you and I to understand today that everything that we believe is focused and hinging on what we celebrate today. That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now take your Bibles and and take a left now and go over to Mark because today we're going to look at Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Go over there, Matthew. Over there, Mark, right before Luke. Mark chapter 15, and we're going to pick up at verse 42. Mark chapter 15, verse 42. And I want to encourage you to use your Bibles. Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 42. Now, real quickly, who is Mark? Mark, John Mark is the... He is... um, He's a young man. In fact, we were introduced to him in Gethsemane. He's just a boy. In fact, the Bible said that he says, as he records his account, that he runs and leaves, actually leaves his, his garment that he had wrapped around him. And a lot of people say, well, who is this young man? His home was probably the setting for the Lord's Supper, for part of the Lord's Supper, for those final moments in the life of Jesus. John Mark's home was a place of refuge. It was a place where Jesus and his disciples would gather. And it's believed that this was the center of the New Testament church, that even in John Mark's, in in, in his home, this is where the New Testament church leaders would gather and they would come together and they would begin to go over things. John Mark had an uncle. His name was Barnabas. You remember Barnabas traveled with the Apostle Paul. And he and Paul and Barnabas actually divided over Barnabas' nephew, John Mark, Mark as we know him in the gospel here. And eventually Paul would take, Paul and and, and Barnabas would divide. Barnabas would take John Mark under his wing and continue to do missionary work. John Mark was heavily influenced by the apostle Peter. And so this is where we're picking up today. Now in Mark chapter 15 verse 42. Because first of all I want us to look at the tomb here. In verse 42 it says, It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. So he summoned the centurion and he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone across the entrance of that tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. 
I want you to kind of picture this scene because this is hurried. Luke tells us, I mean, Mark tells us here, and he's influenced by Peter. He said that because it was the Sabbath, the Sabbath was approaching, that he was kind of hurried. So these women, along with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, had come together. They take down. And you know, I, I thought about this. Can you imagine as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were taking down the body of Jesus Christ from the cross? Can you imagine that event? That limp, lifeless body as they begin to, to pull that body loose from the nails and, 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 and beginning to, 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 to bring it down as those women were grabbing and cradling the feet of Jesus. You know, I thought to myself, angels probably were standing in reverence leaning over the banisters of heaven as this event was celebrated, as it was taking place. But I want you to know something. I believe hell was having a party. I believe that our enemy, the devil, I believe that he was celebrating and he was so excited because the truth, the life, the way had been crucified. He was dead. It was over and it was done. And so we see here the tomb. And in verse 44, it says here that when, the, when they came to Pilate, Joseph of Arimathea, this rich man, as he goes to Pilate and he says to Pilate, we would like to, take the, we would like to have the body of Jesus. That Pilate is surprised because often what would happen, the Roman government had crucified over 30,000 people. They knew this hard. They knew what happens here. So Pilate was surprised. Usually they could linger for days. And so Pilate asked the centurion, he calls the centurion, and the centurion responds, he's dead. We can assure you of that. We broke the legs, as is often the case. They would go up, they would take what looked like a baseball bat, and they would take and they would just break the legs of those that had been crucified if they wanted to speed up the death. And so they went to the two thieves and they broke their legs, which meant that they no longer could push up and breathe. But when they came to Jesus, the centurion noticed that he was already dead. So to ensure, to make sure that he was dead, he asked for a sword and he knew exactly what to do. He took that sword and he pierced up under the rib cage into the periocardial cavity. Cardiologists have studied this relentlessly. And they have said this is exactly what it would look like. It says that when they pierced that pericardial cavity, when they pierced the heart of Christ, He died of a broken heart. It said that water and blood spewed out. And that was the piercing of that pericardial cavity. And you may say, well, why wasn't His legs broken? Because the Bible had prophesied they could not be. In Isaiah 53 verse 5 it says, For He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was brought to us by the wounds of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. By His wounds we are healed. Verse 9 says of Isaiah 53, He was assigned a grave from the wicked and with the rich in His death. I want you to take a left from Mark and go to Matthew. Because it's important for you and I to see this. Matthew chapter 27, verse 62. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, Matthew also writes his account. He said, The next day, the one after, after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. They said, We remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver... 
said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, they may steal the body, tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went, they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. In essence, what happened was that, 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 that legal document that, that would often be signed with a wax seal and a stamp, they said, put that on the tomb so that they would know if that stone had been moved or altered or messed with or, or in any way. And then he said, post guards. Who these guards, listen, were guarding at the risk of their life. In, in Matthew chapter 28, look at that. In Matthew chapter 28, I flip, flip my Bible here, but in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, watch what the Bible says here. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city. They reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, look at the historical accuracy here. The Bible doesn't gloss it over. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. They told them, you are to say his disciples came during the night. They stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and we will keep you out of trouble. So they bring the soldiers in on this. And they said, listen, if there's any problem with the government, if there's any problem with the Roman government, if there's any problem with Pilate, then we'll deal with it. And in verse 15, so the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And watch this. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So here we have Jesus in a borrowed tomb for a short stay. Joseph of Arimathea, these women and Nicodemus, as they take this body down and they put it in the tomb of a rich man, they roll that stone across and the Roman government secures it Guards are put in place. And then they wait. You know, I thought about this. His borrowed tomb. His short stay. I had a friend of mine who, uh, funeral home, called about a burial policy. And they were talking to him and he said, well, let me ask you something. He said, I know this is kind of strange, but do you rent? They said, what? Well, do you rent grave sites? They said, sir, what are you talking about? He said, well, I'm not going to need it very long. He said, I'm not going to need it forever. Do you rent one? He said, because I believe the rapture is going to take place and, and, and I'm not going to need it that long. You know, in some ways, this is what Jesus was doing. Jesus was renting the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea for a very short time. I love Luke 19.34. Because when those disciples went into Jerusalem and Jesus said, you're going to go and you're going to see a foal, a donkey that's never been ridden before, and you take that donkey and you bring them here to me. And when they ask you, what are you doing? You are to say these words, the Lord has need of it. And I thought about this tomb. The Lord had need of it, but He didn't need it for that long. And I thought about a principle here. Are you ready for it? When God uses something that we loan to Him, when we give something to God, God will return it with its value increased. 
If you look at that donkey, I believe that donkey was, listen, I believe the owner of that donkey for the rest of that donkey's life said, you see that foal out there, you see that donkey, that's the one that Jesus the Nazarene rode in when he came in to Jerusalem. That little boy who came with his little simple uh, lunch bag and, and put it in the hands of Jesus, listen, he walked home with 12 baskets full of food. You can imagine his mom when he came up. When you and I give our lives, when we invest in the kingdom of God, when we give Jesus whatever he calls us to give us, my friend, he keeps it, and when he keeps it, he blesses it, and he multiplies it. I believe this tomb to this day, 2,017 years later, is visited from millions and multitudes of people all over the world. And my friend, that's what God can do in your life and in my life. The Bible says they put him in a borrowed tomb. They anointed his body. Time is is of the restraint here. They wrapped that body in linen. They put about a hundred pounds of gum, of gum which comes from the myrrh tree. It was mixed with the powder of the alloy wood. They would take, take this and they would make it into a mixture and it was very expensive. But it was an embalming process. They were trying to cover the they were trying to cover the smell of death. The stench of death. It's an expensive procedure. It's, it, and, and yet it wasn't necessary. How many times had Jesus told them, I'm going to be dead and then I'm going to be resurrected. You're going to see me in a tomb and three days later you're going to see me alive. Why? Because death has no authority. Jesus said, I am life and I am the resurrection. And the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And so here we have, here we have people spending. Listen, I, I thought to myself, even, I, you know, my thought was, had they believed Jesus, they could have saved a lot of money. You ever think about that? Anytime you and I doubt the Word of God, we pay the cost. We pay the cost. If you and I want to see a life that God will bless and use, then we live in obedience to the Word of God. So they, you know, they they wasted a lot of money. They anointed a body. They spent a a, a great deal of money getting this body ready when there was no need of it. But anointing is a picture of religion. If you think about it. It's a picture of religion. It disguises death. It, it covered over. It, it masquerades. It's, and, and some of you in this room, you're, you're religious, but you're not saved. Sheila took down our Christmas tree in March. In fact, I kept looking at us. I said, Sheila, when are you going to take that thing? She said, oh, I just hate to take it down. I love it so much. Don't it look pretty? I said, well, it, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's kind of time. Now, we've got an artificial tree. Okay? So we at least don't have to deal with the pine needles. But, you know, in some ways, religion and what some people have is, is like a Christmas tree. You know, we, we go out and we either go to a lot or we go out into, into woods and we cut down a tree and we bring that tree and we put it in a stand and we might put a little water at the base of it and we hang lights on it and we put, we put ornaments on it and we, we decorate it up. 
And then we look at it and we just are enamored over it, but over time, it begins to let us know that it's, it's dead. In fact, you and I know that eventually an ornament begins to fall. You'll be laying in bed one night. We've actually been laying in bed and the whole tree fall over. You want to get you up quick, that'll get you up quick. Sometimes we'd be eating, sometimes we'd be somewhere, and all of a sudden we'd hear, hear an ornament fall and bust and break. Why? Because that tree was reminding us that it was dead. And when they anointed the body of Jesus, they were trying to masquerade, they were trying to cover over. And see, that's like some of us. We may be dressed up. We may be fixed up. We may smell good and we may be religious, but we're lost. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you're dead in your trespasses and your sins until Christ comes into your heart or into my heart. My friend, we are dead in the eyes of God. And God loves us. But some of us, we're like a Christmas tree. We're all decorated and fixed up. and We look good, but we're dead. We're dead. Some of you in this room, you, you, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I'm not. I had an experience years ago where I went down the water in that baptistry right there. I got my name on the church roll. My friend, that'll make no difference in God's kingdom when you and I stand before Him. None. You see, religion is kind of like anointing. They were anointing a dead body. They were trying to make it look good, but it was still dead. Some of you in this room, if truth be known, you're lost and you know that. And the reality is, is that you may have everybody fooled, but you don't have Christ fooled. And you're living for the enemy. I read a story last night in the manuscript of a friend of mine. He sent me to proof. He tells a story about the Native American Indians. The Native Indians in Alaska would do something. When they were hunting a wolf, they would take a knife and they would, they would coat it in blood and then they'd freeze it. Coated in blood and freeze it. Coated in blood and freeze it. And then they would take that knife and they would stick it down in the ice in such a way that the blade was sticking up. And a, and a wolf would come along and a wolf would begin to lick that blade and begin to scent that blood and lick it and lick it and begin to delight in it and keep licking it. And before long he was licking, he was lick, licking until the point that he was no longer licking that cold, frozen blood but now his own tongue had been severed and he was drinking his own blood. And often what would happen is a wolf would die licking the blade of that knife. There's some in this room, you're religious, but really in reality you care nothing for the things of God. Let's face it. Let's be honest. You don't care anything for the things of God. Bible doesn't mean anything to you. Prayer doesn't mean anything to you. This church, worship, all of these things mean nothing to you because you're dead in your heart. But I want you to know something. Christ loves you and He's pleading with you now. But some of you in this room, you're living for the enemy. And you know how the enemy works? The enemy will do exactly what those native Indians would do to that wolf. The enemy has fooled you and you're choking on your own blood. The life that you're involved in, the things that you enjoy are leading to your own destruction and you don't even know that. And you say, Brother Jeff, that's mighty painful, but the reality is that if I can't lead you to the point of repentance, you'll never be saved. You'll never be saved. 
So then we come to the truth. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought bought spices so that they might go to anoint the body of Jesus. They weren't expecting a live Savior. They didn't believe Jesus would be alive. They were going to anoint a dead body. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. They asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone which had been, which was very large, had been rolled away. You know, I thought to myself here, even as I looked at, you can imagine these women, they're restless, they're anxious, they're, they're, they're fretting, they're thinking about, their whole lives have been turned upside down. They've had little sleep. They gather up, listen, those primitive embalming measures, they do that all that they can do, and they begin to make their way toward that tomb, but their thought is, what are we going to do when we get there and we can't move the stone? Sometimes you and I are worried about things in our life. We are preoccupied with things, hindrances that God will remove if we just step out in faith. Sometimes we lose those blessings because we get so caught up in a hindrance and an obstacle that God, listen, has already removed. But that's our enemy. There's a principle here. We worry about things that already God has taken care of or is taken care of. How many times do you and I miss God's will, God's purpose, God's direction for our lives? Listen, because we're so caught up in a hindrance, in an obstacle. God, we can't afford that. God, we can't do that. God, one of us may get hurt, one of us may die. God says, listen, I've taken care of all of it. You just trust me and follow me and step out in faith. This church has been nothing but a walk of faith and still is to this day. So hear that principle again. We worry about things that God has already taken care of or God will take care of if we'll just let Him. I love this statement. I've often used it. Why worry about tomorrow? God's already there. Why worry about tomorrow? God's already there. Well, I'm not worried about tomorrow. I'm worried about five years from now. God's there. Ten years from now, God's there. Fifty years, five hundred years, God's there. So why am I going to worry about it? Look at verses 4 through 8 of chapter 16. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Verse 6, don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee that you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Wow. I said a moment ago in the African language of the Shona people, Jesu Adri Mu'upenyu. I love that. Jesus, he is alive. Listen to this quote right here. Faith is better than fear. Had the women stayed at home debating ways and means by which to overcome their problems, which some of us do, they would have lost the greatest thrill of their lives. There's a principle again. Your enemy will preoccupy you and I with problems that don't exist 
to keep us from life-changing discoveries that will change our life forever. God's will, God's plan, God's purpose is often lost to problems that God has already taken care of. How sad. We walk not by faith, but we walk by fear. 366 times in the Bible, God says, fear not. That's one for every day. That's a sovereign, omniscient God. That's a fear not for every day. And He said, hey, for a leap year, let me throw one for February 29th. 366 times God says to you and I, fear not, fear not. Fear not. He didn't say good morning. He didn't say shalom. He didn't say good afternoon. He didn't talk about the weather. He said fear not. Because that's the tool of the enemy. And there's too many of us, we're not walking by faith, we're walking by fear. Paul said if God be for us, then who can be against us? I didn't know we were singing that song. God knew it. I put my name there. If God be for Jeff Parker, then who can be against Jeff Parker? Then finally, there's the testimony. Look at verse 7 again. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Don't you love that? God says to these women, He says, listen, this is a great event. This is a great truth, but don't keep it to yourselves. Go tell Peter. Why, why go tell Peter? Because Peter, you remember Peter, that spokesman of the disciples when Jesus said, listen, strike the shepherd and all the sheep will be scattered. Peter said, whoa, not me. No way. Not me. These other cohorts, they may, they may abandon you, but I won't. You remember what Jesus said? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. And when you've come through this, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Note that. And when you've come through this, strengthen your brothers. Three times people would look at Peter as Jesus was in being interrogated and beaten and slapped around. They'd say, don't you know him? Aren't you, aren't you a friend of his? I don't know him. Aren't you a friend of his? I don't know him. Third time, aren't you a friend of him? The old man, the old fisherman came up. I told you, blankety blank, I don't know him. Now leave me alone. And at that moment, you remember the cock crowed and Peter went and began to weep bitterly. Why? Because he was driven not by faith, but because of fear. I love John chapter 21. You remember when he encounters Peter. And he restores Peter. There's restoration, there's revival, there's redemption. Peter, Jesus is alive. When these women went and said, Peter, Jesus is alive, it was an exciting moment. You see, we can't keep truth to ourselves. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Snatch them from pity, the earth and the grave. Weep for the erring one, lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus Almighty to say, Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. But how many of us work with people, live with people, and we're like the lottery winner? Don't you want to know who won $222 million? I'd like to know it, but it doesn't look like we're going to know it, does it? I tell you what, folks, before you pass judgment on that person and talk about what you do, you've, you've, you've won a lot bigger lottery. 
You have eternal life. You have salvation through Jesus Christ. You have, you have the promise of heaven. You have the promise of heaven, eternity in heaven with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You don't have to fear death. Listen, God is omniscient. That means He's all-knowing. God is omnipotent. That means He's all-power. God is omnipresent. That means no matter where you go, Jesus said, I'm with you. I'll be with you, lo, even unto the end. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus said... David said, Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I don't fear because He's with me. You've won something a lot bigger, but how many of us are keeping it to ourselves? Now let me close with this. I want you to take a right, and I want you to go to John, and then we'll close. I want you to go all the way over to the end of John, John chapter 20. John chapter 20, one last thing. In John chapter 20, verse 3, Now they go and report this to to Peter and the disciples. In verse 3, John chapter 20, verse 3, So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter. That was John, the beloved. And he reached the tomb first. He bent over, he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived. And Good old Peter, don't you love him? He went right into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around the head of Jesus. The cloth was folded up by itself separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw, now watch this, now look at this, underline it. He saw and believed. What did he see? Most people, when you look at the language here, they would wrap this body almost like in a cocoon-type configuration. And they would work those, those, uh, those spices and ointments into the wrapping. When they go in by the language, it appears as if the body has been exhumed by not disrupting the wrappings. And so when Peter walks in, he barrels in. John's, John's still nervous about this. He's reluctant to go in. And then finally the Bible goes in and John says, when John says when he walked in and he saw, he saw something and he immediately believed, what did he see? He saw the burial cloths of Jesus as if, some, as if the body had been exhumed out of him. Let me remind you of something. Tim and uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins may have a lot of things wrong, but I do believe this about the rapture. When you and I are raptured, we're not going to be raptured in this clothing. You remember in that opening scene in Left Behind, where that stewardess came up and banged on the cabin of the on the on the on the cockpit door, and and and, and the captain opened the door, and she said, "Captain, we've got a problem." She said, "People are missing." He said, "Well, they're just up moving around. They've gone to the back." She said, "Captain, you don't understand. People are missing." She said, "Their clothes are there. Their socks, their shoes, everything's there. They're gone." And my friend, there's going to come a day when Jesus Christ in all of His glory is going to come and He's going to part the heavens. He's going to call the ecclesia, His church, He's going to call us home. We're going to feel ourselves getting lighter and all of a sudden we're just going to be gone. What John saw was a mini, a mini presentation of the rapture of the church. Because when he saw that, he immediately believed. One last thing said that the head, the head garment was folded. In this particular time, 
when people would eat a meal. When people would eat a meal, or when a master would eat a meal, and his servants were waiting on him. When he got through with the meal, he would take the napkin, he'd wad it up, and he'd throw it on his plate. And that was the, that was the signal to the servants that the meal was completed and they could begin to clean up. If the master, if his meal was interrupted, if the event, if he wasn't finished and planned to come back, what he would do is he would take the garment and fold it and he would set it to the side and that meant that he wasn't finished and he would be back. Let me remind you of something. Jesus is coming back. And I believe this. I believe for some of you in this room, this is the last chance you're ever going to have. In fact, I'm going to say this for certain. It doesn't matter whether you believe me or not. God wants me to tell some of you this is the last chance you'll ever have. You're not going to have another chance. I don't know if that means you're going to die. I don't, need, I don't know if that means that the Bible said, He that hardens his heart and stiffens his neck shall suddenly be cut off and that without remedy. I don't know if you're just going to say no to the last time and the Lord's not going to bother you anymore. I don't know that. But I know this, for some of you in this room, this is the last opportunity that you'll ever have. I don't enjoy Easter. I really don't. Never have. I've been doing this 30-something years. Somebody asked me yesterday about Easter. I really don't. I don't know what happens at Easter. But to most preachers I know, they'll tell you when it's all said and done, when they, when they pull away from the service, they'll look at each other and say, disappointing. Why? Because truth is, we come for reasons other than to just give glory to God and learn spiritual truths. You didn't come today planning to get saved, but God may be dealing with you right now. And there may never be an opportunity like this again. So I want you to understand this. If you're here today and the Holy Spirit is contending in your heart, God's wrestling with you now. And He's stirring in your heart then I want to encourage you to give your life to Christ. So I'm going to ask you to stand. Some of you have slept through the service. You always got one or two that looks like they can't keep their eyes open. You may sleep your way right on into eternity. I don't expect you to be back. But for you in this room that God is dealing with you, I want to invite you to receive Christ with heads bowed and with eyes closed. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you right now. And Lord, I believe there are men and women in this room, boys and girls, that, dear Lord, you have moved in their hearts and their lives. Lord, I believe, dear Lord, that the power of your Holy Spirit has pricked a heart and made a, made a soft but gentle nudge that says you're not right with me. 
I believe there are people in this room that if they were honest, they would admit if I died, I don't know where I'd go. There are people in this room that right now, dear Lord, they don't know whether they're lost or saved. They don't know if they'd go to heaven or hell. And Lord, their lives are just unsure and their lives are broken. They don't know what to do. And so, Lord, first of all, I pray for them. I pray that, dear Lord, if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who says, I don't know where I'd spend eternity. I don't know if I'd go to heaven. But I want to know right now. I want to settle this in my heart. Lord, I pray, dear Lord, that they would right now just open up their hearts, open up their lives, to just simply say, Lord Jesus, I don't know. Lord Jesus, I know I've done a lot of things that I'm ashamed of. Lord, I know that I've broken your heart in so many ways. But right now, Lord, I ask you to come into my heart to forgive me of my sin. and to be my Lord and my Savior. I thank you, Jesus, because of what the Word teaches and the prayer that I've prayed that I'm saved. Lord, I pray if there's one here that prayed that prayer, that they invited you to come into their heart, Lord, I pray today that they would make it public and follow by even right now just coming and saying to a counselor, even as our counselors are coming now, that they would say to one of these counselors, I prayed that prayer, I meant it. I pray for others in this room that look at their life like a Christmas tree. They're dressed up, fixed up, but inside they feel dead. Their lives are so broken, their marriage is dead, they're Their family is dead. Their finances, everything about their life is dead. And Lord, you may be dealing with them today. Lord, whatever that decision may be, I pray that you encourage people to come. Lord, I feel like I've kind of struggled, dear Lord, not been an easy message. Lord, I'm tired. Thank God I'm going on a vacation. God knows I need it. (laughs) Oh, Lord. We are a nation that unless we repent, we are so in trouble. Wake parents up. Make them mindful, dear Lord, that all of the things that we say and do will affect the lives of our children and grandchildren. Not many senior adults ever come down to this altar. Lord, we need people that pray. God, get a hold of us in the name of Jesus.